Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We've already alluded to it, uh, you know, with Parker. We've, we've tried to make this a focus with Sound of Triumph and really combating the mentality of the world over the, the events of this past year. 2020 has been a strange one. Lots of firsts in 2020. Um, speaking of firsts, I, I need, and they're smudged. Uh, stigmatism made me have to get glasses so that the words don't blur together. There's been lots of firsts this year. Glasses, um, at a corporate level, uh, we've seen firsts too. We stood out in that parking lot a few times over this past summer and witnessed some marriages in the middle of the blacktop. That, that's a first. Another first for us as a church was back in March making the decision, the hard decision, the re- in many ways regrettable decision, uh, to, to cancel services. I was right down the street here driving past what was once the golf course uh, when I got the call about COVID possibly maybe being with somebody here at the church and certainly in our Lucas County. And uh, we made the call. We believe it was the right call, but it was at the same time it was regrettable. We'd never canceled worship. And then after that, after that week, uh, we started this period where we all together streamed services. We weren't gathering here. We weren't together. We were sitting in our homes, uh, looking at our computers or our televisions, watching the services here. And that was better than nothing. And we're very grateful for all the men and women that worked very hard to make that possible for us as a church. But one of the comments that I kept hearing during that period, which ended at the beginning of June, was that it just doesn't feel like Sunday. It just doesn't feel like Sunday. You know, we're we're still here. I'm still here. We're still preaching. We're still leading worship. We're not together. We're isolated from each other. And it just doesn't feel like Sunday. There was a lack of satisfaction. And that lack of satisfaction made me glad. As a pastor, as somebody who loves the church, I was glad with that dissatisfaction with watching the services online, although we thought that for a period it was the best thing to do. I was glad that we longed for more. There's something different about Sunday. It's not just another day in the week. It's not just another Saturday or the day before the weekend's over. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. Matthew chapter 12, and then our text speaks to the Sabbath day and what goes on and what does not go on on the Sabbath day. So I'd ask you to take your Bibles, turn to chapter 12. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, feel free to follow along on the screens. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 says this, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of the grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? 
But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Please be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look to your word now, make our minds and hearts open to receive from it. Give us humility. Give us attentive minds and hearts and speak through my words. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the scene of our passage is set with Jesus and his disciples walking from one place to another. They traveled a lot. And they didn't always have what they needed. We know that uh, from the story of the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000. Jesus is traveling. He's going around. He's preaching. And sometimes they find themselves in a position where they don't have what they need for that current moment. And this was such a time because we are told that they're walking through the fields, the grain fields, corn fields, and the disciples are hungry. And they reach out and they take and they eat on this Sabbath day. And as they're doing this, they're observed by the Pharisees, the religious group of the time, those that were most zealous, and as the Gospels teach us, the most hypocritical, the, the, probably the, the ones that Christ speaks out against more than anyone else, the Pharisees observe what they're doing, and they approach Jesus, and they say, as the text said, look, Jesus, look, as if Jesus doesn't know. Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, this is not a mere observation. These are fighting words. The Pharisees are blaming the disciples for plucking the heads of the grain during their journey when they were pressed with hunger, as if by doing that, they were violating the Sabbath day. That's the accusation that they make. And Ben, in his prayer of confession, alluded to God's prohibition against work on the Sabbath in his prayer. We need to keep in mind that the keeping of the Sabbath day was an extremely serious matter. God teaches no commandment more frequently in the Old Testament, nor more strictly requires obedience to any of the commandments. We read throughout the Old Testament, many times in in Jeremiah, in Ezra, in Isaiah, when the Jews, when God's people had fallen away from him in ungodliness, this is what God says over and over and over again. He simply says this, his Sabbaths have been polluted. My people have polluted the Sabbath. Moreover, if there hadn't been something very special and important to God about people's observance of the Sabbath, it would seem like a gross injustice. It would seem atrocious for the man that was cutting wood in the book of Numbers to be killed for what he did. There's a man in the book of Numbers, Numbers 1532, he's going out and chopping lumber. There are some here who love to chop wood. A man's going out to chop wood, and he's put to death for it because it was in transgression of God's command. God cares very much about his Sabbath day, so much so that when he's giving the commandments, the first one is, you shouldn't have any other gods before me. And the second one is, you shouldn't worship idols. And the third is, you shouldn't take my name in vain. You shouldn't blaspheme my name. And then fourth, in that list is, honor my Sabbath day. The the first of the positive commands. Don't, don't, don't do. 
God says to worship him alone, honor him alone, honor his day, keep it holy. One of the things to take note of in the text is uh, that, that, that God, as we read through, let, let me back up just a minute. God says in the book of Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your sojourner who stays with you. So you aren't to do it, and nobody who's under your household should do it. You are responsible. Make sure you don't work, and no one under your household rule, not even your cattle, work. It's a Sabbath unto the Lord. God says to honor his day and keep it holy. One of the things to take note of is the fact that God doesn't hand this commandment down in Exodus chapter 20 as something that's new. This is not novel, actually. He roots this command, the fourth commandment in the Decalogue, he roots this command in the eternal decree of his creation work. Let me read it to us. Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. His justification for what he commands is rooted in the fact that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. The observance of setting aside one day in six is a practice that God himself has modeled for you and for me in his work of creation. Genesis 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were complete. And all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work that, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified the seventh day because in it he rested from the work which he had done. This is the commandment uh, that's being, re- this is the passage rather, that God's commandment in Exodus is rooted in. And based off this section from Genesis chapter 2, I want to point out a couple things to take special notice of. First, God sets a pattern for our work. God himself sets the pattern for our work. God doesn't need to work. He doesn't need the space of six days to form the world and to populate it. He operates outside of time. He tells us that for him, a moment is what? thousand years, and a thousand years is as but a moment. He doesn't need six days to do his work. But he chose to do so for you and me, for our instruction. It wasn't arbitrary. It was a teaching moment. So when he gives us the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, he expects us to pattern Our work in doing all those things, and the creation mandate still goes on today. We just, here in the Western world, sometimes use computers more than rudimentary tools to do it. We're still figuring out and subduing the earth that exists today. So in our work today, whatever your occupation is, it's patterned after God's work in creating the world. Six days he worked, and he rested on the seventh And in ceasing from that work, he is laying down a pattern that he calls you and I to enter into and to follow his example in. Second, God sets a pattern for our rest. First, he sets a pattern for our work. Second, he sets a pattern for our rest. What sort of rest is this? 
We know that if it wasn't for God's perpetual sustaining and governing of the world, all things would fall apart. Psalm 104 teaches us that all things are held together by him. If he was gone for but a moment, everything would just vanish if it wasn't for his purposeful will upholding it. And so in what sense did he rest? It's not a rest that implies that God is doing nothing. It's not a rest that implies he's removed himself from his creation. No. The text says he ceased from his work of creation. Does it say he ceased from everything? God rested not because he needed to rest, but he rested so that he might glory in his work that he had done. What did he say after all things were created? It is good, right? Doesn't the benediction, doesn't the, the seventh day of rest sort of seem like God's benediction over the work that he's just been doing? He's glorying in the work that has consumed the past six days. He's glorying in his work and he's providing a pattern for us to follow him. Resting from our work after six days to glorify him for his works, for what he has done. The third thing we should notice is that God blessed the seventh day. We are all prone to read things like that in Scripture and gloss right over them and not think about the implications for what that means. What does it mean that God blessed the seventh day? It's sort of a weird thing to say. When was the last time you blessed a day? We bless those we love. We bless those who are close to us. Remember the angel when he came to Mary. It's, we're coming up on Christmas time. And this passage came to my mind when I was thinking about God blessing the seventh day. We, we have the angel who comes to Mary, and when he comes to Mary, what's he say? He says, greetings. Anybody remember? Favored one? Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And just a few verses later, Mary meets up with Elizabeth, her, her relative, and we're told that as soon as Mary enters Elizabeth's presence, what does Elizabeth say? Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Bless, God blesses people that are highly favored in his sight. And in the same way, we are told that he blessed the seventh day. He blessed the seventh day. Moses adds one more thing. Alongside the blessing, there's a sanctification to the day. He blessed the day, he made it holy. He set it apart. So God doesn't just bless the day, he sets it apart from the other days. As I said earlier, six days were spent forming the earth, and God did not need that time to complete his work, but he wanted to engage with us in consideration of his work. He wanted his work to set the example for our work. He had the same end in mind with his resting. He set apart a day for special use, a day in which men might set aside their work and devote themselves to considering the majesty and the glory of God. The reality is, listen to this, think about it, God creates the world and populates it and places man in it and makes woman and tells them to go and subdue the earth. How many days a week do you think that God should be worshipped and glorified by his creation, where the sole focus is our attention to the Lord? Is he worthy of seven days a week, 24 hours a day? Is that not when we go to heaven, 
Micaiah just, uh, you know, my kids often ask questions about heaven, right? And especially when we've been to funerals, they ask questions about heaven. Maybe it was Micaiah, maybe it was Nate. You know, he was, he was asking, is God, the, is God the only holy thing, person, spirit? Is he the only holy thing in the, in the world? And got us into a little conversation the other night about heaven. And one of the things that I uh, came up in the midst of the conversation was the fact that in heaven, what do we know? We know that the angels, the angelic beings, fall before the feet of God and Christ on the throne forever, worshiping him perpetually. Do we remember that? We remember that. That's in perfection. That's in glory. Don't you think that we, who are sinful beings, owe that to the Lord right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. God is worthy of it, but he has given us six days to do our work. He's given us a job to do, and in his kindness, he said, those six days, you are to do your work. The seventh day is mine. The seventh day is mine. On the topic of work and rest, Calvin says, first, therefore, God rested, then he blessed this rest, that in all ages, all ages, it might be held sacred among men, for he dedicated every seventh day to rest, that his own example might be a perpetual rule. This is not something that has gone away. For God cannot either more gently allure, more effectively, or more effectively entice us to obedience than by inviting us and exhorting us in the imitation of himself. Besides, we must know that this is to be the common employment, not of just one age or one people only, but of the whole human race. Since the completion of Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection, on the first day of the week, his church has observed the Christian Sabbath on Sunday. God has blessed and sanctified this day, setting it apart from all others. But by and large, this is something that the church has lost sight of. What is precious to God is all too infrequently frequently precious, not precious to us. So Sunday becomes a day where we do our work, homework. The work that we didn't get done before Friday because we're going back into Monday morning. It's where we do our retail work. It's where we do our sports. One obvious reflection of this mentality being so pervasive is the, in my lifetime, the, the, the phenomenon of services all throughout the week. And let me say here, folks, if you've been watching anything online, this past year has just blown this issue open. It's not just Sunday, Saturday evening services for those who can't get it in on Sunday. It is church on demand for whenever you can get it in. That's, that's what all churches going to video has, has, has produced this year. So you can go and you can find church on demand as a tagline pretty much anywhere if you look for it. And it's, it's pathetic. We have, have, have moved to Saturday or Sunday evening services trying to get church in. When I, when I was working at the church in Westlake, Lausanne, uh, this exact issue came up because there is no more convenient time to climb the mountains and go skiing or go on hikes or go kayaking on Lake Geneva than on Sunday mornings. And perpetually, we were dealing with people who wanted the service to be 8.30 on Sunday night so they could go and ski and have their fondue 
and ski down the mountain and then buzz into church and, and get it in. This is, this is out there, it's pervasive, and it's a mentality that we can fall prone to. We can fall prone to it. When months ago when I heard, it just doesn't feel like Sunday, I knew that this sort of mentality is always creeping at the door. It's always creeping at the door. Even if we aren't through that doorway yet, we must be vigilant. Is getting church in the extent of God's command for his Sabbath day? Is the fourth commandment an hour and a half? Of course, worship is the chief work that we engage in on the Sabbath. But God's command goes beyond corporate worship. This is one of the dangers of not meeting for corporate worship. Uh, Sunday can become a very convenient day for our needs. It can be, begin to feel a lot like vacation rather than the Lord's day. This day has been blessed and set apart. We can't separate those two ideas. They go together. Some of us consider Sunday a blessing because we don't set it apart. It's the day when we get to do what we want. We appreciate having extra time. But if you were to document how we use that time, does it look like Saturday? Does it look different than Saturday? Think about that in your mind. For others of us, Sunday is a day that's set apart, but our attitude Throughout it looks much more stressed than blessed. Or as I said to my wife earlier, stressing than blessing. We're going through all these things, but we, we aren't thinking about the fact that God says this day is a blessing. You know, I told Ben, I leaned over, I said, Ben, leave that up here. A blessing. This is his assurance of pardon. If you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow his commands, I give you today. If the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth and all these blessings will come on you and accompany you, if you obey the Lord your God, you will be blessed in the city, blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves and the herds, the lambs, your baskets and kneading dough will be blessed. Kneading dough is going to be blessed. Everything is going to be blessed. You know, I was thinking about the fact when God blesses something, when God blessed the land of Canaan, it wasn't a blessing in title alone. The people entered into Canaan, which he had blessed, and they knew it was a blessed land, and the land produced blessing in their life. Do we not agree with God that it's a blessing, and do we not expect to be blessed by honoring what he says to do on his day? Do you consider this day a blessing, and is it set apart? Does this day look different from the things you'd normally fill your time with? If you say that you consider Sunday a blessing, would your children vouch for you? That's a question I had to think about. If it's a blessing, do my children know it? Then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which he had done. So we're going back now to our passage in Matthew where the Pharisees uh, were interacting with the disciples and we have to ask a question. Were the Pharisees right to be concerned about what was and what was not done on the Sabbath day? Of course they, they were right to be concerned. They had a right to be concerned. Were they right in their accusation that the disciples had done what was unlawful? Well, yes and no. If you look at Jesus' response, one of the striking things is he doesn't try to maintain that his disciples had not done something that was unlawful. But he also tells them at the end that they've condemned the innocent. Instead of denying their accusation, he cites two examples of law-breaking. Former king of Israel, David, before he was made king, going and taking the bread of the presence. And the priests, 
whom the Pharisees, many of them themselves, probably would have been in, in, included in some of that labor, the priests who minister into the temple on Sabbath day. But we ask, in what sense were the disciples' actions unlawful? In what sense were they unlawful? Had the disciples done something that was expressly forbidden by the commandment of God? Had they committed an act that was sinful in God's sight? Certainly not. If they would have, Jesus would not have maintained their integrity or defended them. God commands, God's commandment forbids work on the Sabbath day. But the Jewish scribes were not satisfied with that simple prohibition. We read it, Exodus 20. It can be found in Deuteronomy as well, but we read Exodus 20. You heard what God had commanded Moses on the mountain, what he had commanded Moses to write down. God had said, do no work. But work had to be defined, didn't it? God didn't tell us. So, what sorts of things constitute work? To carry a burden on the Sabbath is work. But what's a burden? Scribal law, now this is extra-biblical, this is the, 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 the writings of the scribes and the Jews, which continue today, um, had said that a burden is food equal to a weight of a dried fig. Enough wine for mixing in a goblet, or milk enough for one swallow, or honey enough to put upon a wound, or oil enough to anoint a small member, or water enough to, to moisten an eye salve, or paper enough to write a customs house notice upon it, or enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet. I think some of these things are bigger than the others. <laughs> or read enough to make a pen, and so on endlessly and endlessly. And you can find this online. If you, if you, you dig into these scribal oral traditions that have been documented and written out, I, I want to say that I remember reading it was over in translated into the English language. If you start going down this road with the commands of God, you just go on and on and on and on and on and on. And I want to say that there was over 60 volumes in the English language given to these, these laws. If this, if this, if this. Scribes spent hours arguing and debating whether a man could or could not lift a lamp from one place to another on the Sabbath day, or whether a tailor, if that was his occupation to sew, would commit a sin if he left the house forgetting he had a needle in his pocket because that was his tool, or whether a woman might wear a brooch or false hair, or a man for that matter, or even if a man might go out on the Sabbath with artificial teeth or an artificial limb, because do they weigh more than two drops of ink? According to scribal law, the disciples in our passage were guilty of more than one breach in the law. By plucking the grain, they were guilty of reaping. By rubbing it in their hands, they were guilty of threshing. By separating the grain and the chaff, they were guilty of winnowing. By the whole process, they were guilty of preparing a meal on the Sabbath day. For everything that was to be eaten on the Sabbath was to be prepared the day before. The fourth commandment requires men to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, keep it set apart from the others for the worship of God. The Pharisees were right to be concerned about what was and what wasn't done on this Lord's day, but they were wrong in their judgments and they were evil in their motivations. We come to understand this as we continue further in the passage and we see Jesus' quotation from the prophet Hosea and he says this, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. What's that mean? Why is he bringing it up? Jesus rebukes the Pharisees saying that if you would have known what this means, you would not have condemned the innocent. Hosea 
was a prophet sent by God to declare judgment on an apostate Israel. Israel had forsaken the Lord, they had gone after other gods, and God sends the prophet Hosea to them. And one of the striking things, if you've ever read through the book of Hosea, which I would encourage you, if, if you haven't read the Old Testament minor prophets, read them. One of the things that is striking about this particular one is that God tells Hosea in the opening verses to go out and to marry a prostitute. And the reason he tells him to go out and marry a prostitute and to have children of harlotry is because the land of Israel has committed flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord, and he sent Hosea to be a, a visible picture of the shame that they were to their God. Through Hosea, God declares to Israel that the people he had plucked up and and raised from nothing had forsaken him and committed harlotries with other gods. This is the context into which God declares that he delights in compassion rather than sacrifice. Or Hosea actually says loyalty rather than sacrifice in the Hebrew. And in the knowledge of God rather than in burnt offerings. That's what God's message is to Israel through the prophet Hosea. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Sure, Israel kept observing some of the festivals and feast days. He says, I don't want to sacrifice. Sure, they continued to make their sacrifices, but their hearts weren't in it. They didn't love God. They loved themselves. That's the reality here. They loved themselves. They didn't desire to do what God had said was right. They did what seemed right in their own eyes. They paid lip service to God. They didn't honor him. They honored themselves. And God says, oh, that you would have compassion. Oh, that you would be actually loyal to me. Oh, that you'd have a knowledge of actually who I am rather than this rote lip service. This is a message that God says over and over and over again through different prophets. Through Isaiah, he says, I'm so sick of the stench of your offerings. You make me sick. I don't want to smell them. I don't want to hear your prayers. I want you to do what's right. Here's the point. The Pharisees' chief desire was to make holiness something that they had achieved in themselves. It's right to be concerned with the Sabbath day. But they weren't interested in honoring the Sabbath day. They were concerned with honoring themselves and being honored by other people. The fact of the Pharisees' Perceived concern with the Sabbath was self-centered, self-righteous. We do not have to argue about this. If you read the Gospels, the whole of every interaction with the Pharisees are things like this. Time after time, the Pharisees who dishevel themselves while fasting for the sake of their appearance. It's the Pharisees who annul the commandments of God and lead little ones astray even while they pile on command after command after command after command. It's the Pharisees who claim to care for the widows even as they're robbing them. It's the Pharisees who stand out in the streets whooping and hollering and making a big deal about their righteous deeds so that they might be noticed and honored by men. It's the Pharisees who like to stand and pray on the busiest street corners, holding up their hands, saying, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this man, a sinner. And but their fingers might be pointed up to God, but their hearts are looking at themselves. They might as well be going like this. Aren't I great? Aren't I great? Aren't I great? This is the chief desire to make holiness something that they had achieved and grabbed for themselves and by their own power. They weren't seeking God's honor. They were seeking their own. I didn't mention this earlier, but we did talk about how the scribes had added many 
things onto the simple, plain commandments of God. And I had mentioned some of the rules, but what I didn't say is that for at least some of these rules, they had architected workarounds so that if they wanted to break the rule themselves, they could. An example of this is Tikam Shabbat. I'll show you. There was a rule that said on the Sabbath day or on the festival days, you were not allowed to travel more than, I think it was, what, 6,000 cubits? Yeah. 6,000 cubits, no, 2,000 cubits, rather, past the city limits. And the city limits was defined wherever the houses stopped being 70 cubits apart, that's the city limit, right? So, you know, you think of neighborhoods in the countryside here. We, we know that in, in the cities, neighborhoods are more compact, and uh, wherever those, you know, the spacing between the houses got to be a country mile, to use our colloquial term, that was where the city ended. And you weren't allowed to go 2,000 cubits past that line, wherever that line might be for you. But here's the deal. What if you wanted to go past the line? Well, the law said you couldn't. But if you went on Saturday, and I have here some bread that my wife made in this nice storage baggie, and you went on Saturday and you said, I'm going to put that there. You go back to your house and on the Sabbath day, you want to go past that bread? Guess what? You can go 2,000 cubits past this bread loaf and that rock. You know why? Because you had established a temporary home there. Now, to us, you know, they, they considered this a temporary dwelling. And you could go 2,000 feet, cubits past that if you wanted to. Now, listen, I say all this, and I I brought that to make an example of the the crazy thing that the Pharisees would do to erect very strict standards and rules and then place in themselves and by their own authority and by their own judgments the ability to break them and to still be holy and to still be better than Jesus and the disciples for what they were doing. I hope that we're getting a sense for how far the scribes and the Pharisees went in adding to the plain commandments of God, and I hope that their motivation for doing so is clear. God commanded that they remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy by resting from their labor and giving themselves to his worship and his work. They added and added to God's commands without a sincere desire to honor God, but because they wanted holiness, something that they could achieve in their outward actions. They cared immensely about their appearance, how people perceived them, what people thought about them. They cared about themselves. This was the fuel that motivated strict adherence to all the rules that they had layered on top of God's commands. They weren't honoring God. They were honoring themselves. I've been trying to drive home this point in all of our minds together. This is why precisely in verse 8, Jesus declares that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now there are those who read this verse and take this verse and interpret it as if Jesus is liberating us from any weekly observance, as if he uh, had intended to declare his disciples innocent on the basis of him throwing out the fourth commandment. There are those who say this statement is basically him saying, well, 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 I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, so, huh, they're fine. And just like that, dispensing with the fourth commandment of the law. This doesn't even touch the idea that the fourth command itself is just a mere reflection of something that's been built into creation and God's pattern for us. 
by saying the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, he isn't freeing us from a sense of obligation. He is underscoring the reality that he is Lord over the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one that all of the worship of this day, all of the festivals and the feasts, the sacrifices, they all point to him. They aren't the lords of the Sabbath. He is. They weren't the ones who should be receiving honor by maintaining rules. He is. By quoting Hosea, God, Jesus, is claiming lordship over the Sabbath. And Jesus isn't merely saying that they were wrong in condemning the disciples. He's exposing what they really worshipped all along, themselves. And he is claiming his lordship over them. They honor themselves. The Lord of the Sabbath does not look with favor on men seeking to steal his honor and his glory. Let me say that the mistakes of the Pharisees on the Sabbath were in one direction. And I really think the mistakes of us as Christians go in the other. The Pharisees added to the commands so as to create a system where they could maintain the end result being their own honor. Today, we're prone to take away from the commandments and to keep this day in a way that's idle or profane or irreverent, whether it's sports, whether it's lake homes, whether it's shopping, homework, housework, whether it's Amazon. How do we, I have to reflect on how I'm using my day. What, you know, I, I, don't, I make a point not to sh- shop on Sunday, but we have here window shopping like you've never believed, seen before, people. Um, what do we do with this day? In all these things, when we pursue them, we honor ourselves. When we spend our afternoons browsing what we want to buy, and we're honoring ourselves. If you were to make a, a diagram of what our attention is going after, we, we are pointing inward. We aren't thinking about the Lord. We aren't thinking about his glory. We aren't thinking about him in a way that's different than the rest of the week. We can't do this. It would seem that we are, have the opposite problem of the Pharisees. We've talked a lot about them this morning. But the reason we've talked a lot about them is we'd like to say that we have set sailed in the opposite direction, but folks, we meet them on the other side of the globe. Because the point, at the, at the heart of what they're doing, they're honoring themselves. They love themselves over the Lord. And so whether you make a whole bunch of commandments to uphold your own righteousness or whether you throw off the commandments for your own ease, the root sin is the same. You love yourself. And Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Give it to me. The zealous Pharisee who adds to the law and the lazy Christian who disregards God's commands to honor the Sabbath era like they honor themselves by putting God's commandment under their own judgment. Eh, I want to do this. And they're living in hypocrisy, claiming to love God and to put him first, but actually putting own desires and reputation and honor first. In a culture that runs 24-7 in the pursuit of the almighty dollar, where school systems don't take any break over the weekend and our kids are playing sports on Sunday, in a culture that has totally lost sight of the blessing of rest, we must remember that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And more than just that he's Lord, that he has set it aside, that he has honored and blessed it. It's not a yoke to be borne on our backs 
it is a day to rejoice in because it's a day where he's given us fellowship with him in a way that's different than every other day. When we disregard the Sabbath, we disregard Christ. When you dishonor the Sabbath, you dishonor Christ. When you violate the Sabbath, you disobey the God who reigns over it. This is a principle of life. If you disrespect a man's wife, you've disrespected the man. If you diss the elders in this church, you've dissed the church. We have laws prohibiting, protecting rather, our flag, prohibiting people from doing things to the flag, because why? We understand that if you deface a flag, you've dishonored America. We all get that. That's a pretty simple thing to wrap your mind around. The same thing is true here. We are to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy because when we do that, we honor the Lord of the Sabbath. And God, from the beginning of Genesis, tells us that we'll, we'll be blessed. This is a day for our blessing. Do you believe Jesus? Do you believe God when he holds out a promise to you? You believe that he'll come through on that promise. He will. Godly pastor J.C. Ryle says this, let us beware that we are never tempted to take low views of the sanctity of the Christian Sabbath. Saving Christianity is closely bound up with Sabbath observance. You think about our honoring the Sabbath as an evangelistic tool. Do you think that people notice that you treat this day differently? Does your light shine because of the way you, you treat the Sabbath day? Saving Christianity is closely bound up with Sabbath observance. May we never forget that that's the great, the great aim should be to keep the Sabbath holy. Works of necessity may be done. It's lawful to do well and to show mercy. Those are the types of things Jesus cited, right? Whether it's a mercy with Jesus, David coming in and getting bread for his men, or whether it's, whether it's um, works of necessity like serving in the temple. But to give the Sabbath to idleness, to pleasure-seeking, or the world is utterly unlawful. It is contrary to the example of Christ, and it's a sin against the plain commandments of God. The Lord of the Sabbath is set apart this day. He set it apart for us, for our good. When we follow his example and do the same, he receives honor, and we are blessed for it. The Sabbath is not only a blessed day, but a day of blessing. As we already said, when the people went into Canaan, Canaan itself, was a land that blessed Israel. Our Lord has blessed and set apart the Sabbath day because on it he rested from his labors. And he, as the scripture says, calls us. He calls us into his rest. That's what the scripture says. He calls you into his rest. Do you want rest? Let's obey his command. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for taking care of us for taking care of our needs. Father, we thank you for this day and the gift of it. I pray that we would be a people that honor this day, that honor your name, that honor your lordship in so doing. I pray that you'd be magnified in our, in our, in our family, in our church family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.